take your Bibles, turn with me to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be back in Acts chapter 2 this evening. And we're going to be looking, we're just, we read the entire passage last week, and so this evening we're going to be just looking at um, verses 37 through 47. Uh, of course, we're going to be referencing some things in the, uh, we're going to be referencing some things throughout the rest of the passage, uh, but this evening I'd like us to just focus upon the effect of what happened in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, verse 37. Now, when they heard this, they, this is the crowds of the Jews there at Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And just to quickly remind you, the thing that they had been charged with was crucifying, killing the Lord of glory. That the Christ had come to them, and instead of accepting him, instead of receiving him, they rejected him and killed him. And now he is risen from the dead. And of course, that actually is a, a fearful thing for those who have killed him, because now that he is alive, particularly the Jews knowing the promises made in the Old Testament, he would come in his resurrection to bring judgment. And so there is, to some extent here, a despair in what they're saying. Brothers, what shall we do? And our God is gracious. He provides hope. And he says, Peter says to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Let's seek God's face in prayer. Father, we again thank you for the opportunity we have to come into your presence, to hear from your word again. And Lord, we pray that you would just again work by your spirit as we've read in our reading of the work of your spirit among your people at Pentecost. Uh, Father, particularly as we understand how this is an indication of the prophetic work that we are now given and tasked to do, uh, Lord, may we seek to grow by what you have for us here this evening. Uh, may we, through your word today, have a greater appreciation for, thankfulness for, and dependence upon 
your Holy Spirit. Father, we pray these things in Christ's precious name, pleading his blood. Amen. So, again, we are looking at the threefold office of Christ as he is prophet, priest, and king. And, again, one of the things that we did way back when, when we started this study, was we made the contention that Adam was created to be these three, or to have these three roles, to be a prophet, to be a priest, and to be a king. And, of course, Adam sinned, and there was a failure uh, in, his, in regards to him completing these roles. And so, as a result, uh, someone needed to come who would perfectly fulfill those roles. And that person is the Lord, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And Christ comes as the perfect prophet, the perfect priest, and the perfect king. And so now what we're looking at is on the, particularly as we've spent time speaking of how Christ is the perfect fulfillment of that prophetic office, now we who have been saved by his grace, we are restored by God's grace to be able to fulfill these roles again. And so particularly we're looking now at how the Christ's prophetic role has been sort of handed off to the church. And how the church now takes up the mantle of Christ in one sense, the role that Christ had as a prophet. Now, we've been talking about how does God enable us to do this? How does this work out in a daily basis within the church? And so we've been looking at, and we saw several weeks ago, well, first of all, it begins with the fact that we are united to Christ by faith. Our union with Christ brings many benefits, but it also brings responsibility. And part of that responsibility is to take Christ's message and to share it with the world around us. But we are enabled to do this through the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And so we spent a good amount of time discussing some of the promises that Jesus made about the Holy Spirit in John 14 and in John 16, and how he gave this promise that the Spirit was to come. And then... Here in Acts chapter 2, what we actually see is this promise fulfilled, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So just to quickly uh, sort of review what we talked about, the promise of the Spirit is fulfilled at Pentecost. When he comes upon believers, his work in the believers, particularly at Pentecost, is not focused among believers, but rather it's focused on how believers relate to the world around them, a evangelistic ministry, if you will. And of course, we also looked at how Christ's, how the Spirit, and particularly how Christ describes the work of the Spirit in John chapter 16. And we reminded ourselves that the work of the church is impossible without the Spirit. In fact, Jesus says it is to his, our advantage that he goes away, because if he stayed, the Spirit would not come. But it is through the Spirit that the church is able to do the works of Christ, and even as Christ himself said, to do greater things than what he himself had done. Now, we talked last week about the particular and distinct role of conviction that the Spirit has among the world. Jesus speaks about this in John chapter 16, that he will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And those three convictions come because of sin, because the world does not believe in him, of righteousness because he goes to the Father, and so that speaks of how the Father accepts Christ, and that is a, it, is a, it is a public, universal declaration of Christ's righteousness that he ascends to the Father, and then of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. 
And we find that these three things, sin, righteousness, and judgment, are three things that Peter himself specifically points to in his sermon in Acts chapter 2. He confronts the crowd's rejection of Jesus. You killed the Lord of glory. You crucified him. You did this. He speaks of the righteousness of Christ, which is vindicated by his resurrection and ascension. The fact that Jesus rose from the dead, shows that his righteousness was acceptable to the Father. And then the fact that he ascended into the heavens and was accepted by the Father, it is in many ways the, the, the exclamation point upon the ministry of Christ. If you remember during Christ's ministry, there were two or three particular times where a voice would come from heaven and God would say that he was pleased in his Son. Well, his acceptance of the Son is the greatest demonstration of that, that Christ went into the heavens, and Peter points to that. And then Peter specifically quotes Psalm 110 in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 through 35, pointing to the fact that this King, this Messiah, this Christ that the Jews had crucified and is now living is a king who will come again. And particularly in Psalm 110, that coming again is is not a coming for joy and happiness to those who have rejected Christ. He comes as a conquering king, crushing his enemies. And so, Peter calls the crowds to a simple response. Repent and believe the gospel. So this is how the Spirit is working in the world. And we we took some lessons away from that last week to to point to the fact that these are the things we should be pointing the world to. That sin, that great sin that resides in the hearts of mankind is their rejection of Jesus Christ. That Christ's righteousness is vindicated. that, That that is why rejection of Christ is such a big deal. Because if we reject Christ... We reject the only one who was accepted before the Father. And that rejection of Christ, rejection of this perfect one, brings about God's judgment. That is the message we are to give, and then it is the Spirit's role to convince the world of that, truthful, of that truthfulness. And so there's a, there's a great hope. Our, our responsibility is pretty simple. One of the things I take comfort in as a, as a pastor, as someone who proclaims the word on a weekly basis, is that it's not my responsibility to convince you. All right? My responsibility is to say, this is what the word says, and then the spirit has to be the one who convinces you. And, and one of the reasons why this is a, um, a wonderful, freeing thing for me, have you ever seen a Facebook argument <laughs> You ever seen people on social media go back and forth? Does anybody convince anybody of anything? No. But our confidence as we proclaim the word is not in our abilities to convince people, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has power to convince anyone as he works in the hearts of men. Now, so we saw saw that role that the Spirit has in that convicting work. But now I want to talk particularly about the significance of Pentecost as it regards the prophetic role of the church. Now, if we remember and we look back at Christ's ministry, all right, we know that he comes, his, his coming, his birth, is an a absolutely awesome event. It is an amazing event to see. 
and there is proclamation given. We have, you know, we all know the nativity story and the wise men and the shepherds and the angels in the sky. And, and there's just a lot, of, a lot of that story that's very familiar to us. But if you notice, there's a lot discussed about that to point to the fact that Christ fulfills prophecy. But then, as the Gospels go on, there's a big chunk. In fact, the majority of Jesus' life is not described in the Gospels. We hear the end of his life, the last what we think of as three and a half years of his life, but he was likely around 30 or 33 years old when he began his earthly ministry. And so there's, there's just a, a vast amount of time where nothing is said about Jesus' ministry. His ministry begins when he's baptized by John. And when he is baptized by John, what happens? Who comes upon Christ? The Holy Spirit. And then he takes up the prophetic role. The Spirit is given to Christ, and then he begins preaching the gospel of the kingdom. Repent and believe the good news about me. That's how Christ's ministry begins. And of course, it takes us back to what Peter says in 2 Peter. That no prophecy comes through man's will or through the exertion of, of man's efforts, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by who? The Holy Spirit. And so that even applies to Jesus' prophetic ministry because he was a prophet, as we've pointed to. So if Christ is handing off that prophetic ministry to the church, what does the church need to fulfill that prophetic role? The Holy Spirit. And that is the significance, one of the significances of what's happening here at Pentecost. In fact, when we see the Spirit coming upon Christ, it happens in a very spectacular way. And in fact, we see a lot of similarities between the Spirit coming upon Christ and the Spirit coming upon the apostles here. The Spirit descends from heaven in spectacular form. And he comes upon the church in similar ways to his coming upon Christ. It says here that as the apostles are in the upper room, that the Spirit rushed upon them or came immediately or suddenly upon them. And that happened at Jesus' baptism. Immediately, the, the, um, the, the gospel writers say, as Jesus comes up out of the water, almost sort of given the idea he's not fully, completely up out of the water, John sees the Spirit descending upon him. It is a sudden thing in that moment. He comes from heaven. There is this rushing sound that comes from heaven that's described in Acts chapter 2. And of course, the Spirit is demonstrated at Christ's birth, or Christ, I'm sorry, Christ's ba baptism as coming from heaven. He comes with tangible signs. If you remember, John the Baptist sees heaven opened. He hears a voice. And particularly for John the Baptist, it was revealed what that voice said, but there was a clear thundering that the crowds mention at the baptism of Jesus. He comes with tangible signs in Acts chapter 2. Right? We see what happens. There's these flaming tongues or what was like flaming tongues above their heads. And what do the apostles begin doing? Speaking in different languages that they hadn't learned. And everyone is there and they're like, how do, these, how do these Galilean fishermen know all these different languages? He rests on 
the disciples. And in fact, this is one of the things that John the Baptist was pointed to by in prophecy, that his father, or that, that God spoke to him, that he would be the one who would see the Spirit rest upon Christ. And that that would be the Messiah, the one who was promised. And so we have the same thing happening here. The Spirit comes not in a temporary fashion, as was often the case in the Old Testament, not for just one specific role, but He comes to abide with the disciples. And then, Jesus is baptized, the Spirit comes upon Him, He goes out and preaches the Gospel. And what is the immediate effect of the Spirit upon the apostles? The immediate effect is He gives them utterance. Scripture say that they begin to speak and they speak every man in different tongues or different languages that were there. And so the primary utterance that we see here in all the apostles is these disciples that are now apostles is this gift of tongues. But what is the focus of the passage? Is the focus of the passage on the gift of tongues? It's actually not. The focus of the passage is on what Peter says. It is a record of his sermon. And so there is this clear indication, just like when Christ began his ministry after receiving the Holy Spirit, so the apostles don't begin their prophetic utterances until the Spirit comes upon them. So do you see the baton being passed, or the mantle coming from Christ and resting upon the apostles. In fact, in Acts chapter 1, Jesus tells the disciples, wait for the Holy Spirit. Don't begin your ministry until you have the Holy Spirit. Now, any discussion of Acts chapter 2 is going to bring up a discussion of the issue or the concern or, or what we talk about when we talk about the gift of tongues. All right? How should we understand what's going on here? And is this something that is persisting in the church today? So this is sort of a little, a little extra. This is, this is bonus. There's no charge for what you're going to hear tonight about the, the gift of tongues. But I thought it was important to address it because it is a bit of a controversial issue in our day and age. Um, some, of, some of my favorite theologians, some, some of the men that I love to read, I have some very strong disagreements with them on particularly how the gift of tongues and moreover the whole idea of miraculous gifts operate in the church today. And there's a couple things that we can surmise just by looking at Acts chapter 2 regarding the description of particularly the gift of tongues. What were they speaking? Were they speaking some unintelligible language? No, they were speaking human languages that had not been learned, something that they had not ever learned before. And I think, I think any discussion of the gift of tongues needs to start there because so much of what happens in the name of the gift of tongues today is not what's happening in Acts chapter 2. It's not the utterance of an unlearned human language. It's often the utterance of gibberish. But that being said, there are other things that happen during the time of the apostles, right? We hear about the apostles healing people. In fact, so much so that, that handkerchiefs that they had would be passed around and people would be healed by that. There are prophetic utterances that are, are, and sayings that are being said at these times. There's these healings that are going on. There, there are a, a number of gifts that are given to the church in a miraculous sense. 
So the question is, well, is this something that we should be seeking today? Is this how God works among his people today? Are these miraculous gifts for us today? And as you know, there are many people who would say, yes, all you have to do is turn on most of the major Christian stations today and you'll be able to see the promotion of people who believe that these miraculous gifts continue today. So let's talk about miraculous gifts. And so that's where we're, this is where our, our little rabbit trail goes this evening. Now, there seems to be, I think, sometimes a, a misunderstanding about how prolific miracles are in the Scriptures. Uh, because I think we are naturally drawn to these supernatural acts of God that we see in Scripture, right? So, so when you think about God's working, or when you think about things in the Old Testament, what are some of the, the stories that you think of? The Red Sea being parted, you know, the, 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 the rod that Aaron had that budded, or, or the fact that, that Moses would, would, would reach down and grab a serpent and it would turn into a rod, that manna would literally come up from the ground at, at the dew of the day, and that they, there would be this swarm of pigeons that would come, and, and they would play baseball with the pigeons, and that's how they would feed themselves. I mean, there, we, we hear about the fire on top of the mountain, and we hear those stories. We hear other stories of the conquest, you know, marching around Jericho seven times, or one time every day, and then seven times on the seventh day, and these huge walls that, that kept it up, what happened to them? Down they came. We hear of stories of how Elijah and Elisha, how, how they would raise dead, dead people, dead children from the grave. How, how a little bit of oil and flour would be able to be kept for ages and that that would essentially feed people like it should have ran out in one day and yet it fed them and sustained them for a significant amount of time. We hear stories like Jonah and the great fish. You know, you know anyone here want to sign up to be swallowed by a fish and survive that, that, that circumstance there? No. So our minds have a tendency to run to these stories and say, well, there are just miracles all over the Bible. And then we get to the New Testament, and there's tons of miracles. What's Jesus doing? He's turning water into wine. He's healing people who've been born blind and, and making, literally gr- reaching down in the dust and forming uh, eyes and putting them in someone's uh, head who had been blind from life. He raises Lazarus from the dead. The apostles, as we mentioned, did all these miraculous things. So certainly this is the the normative pattern in Scripture that there are miracles going on almost all the time. And that's sort of the sense we get. But that's if we look more carefully at Scripture and understand how it's laid out, that actually is not the case. Throughout the history of Scripture, events like what we see here at Pentecost, what's described throughout the book of Acts is actually very rare. It's not a common occurrence for these miraculous things to be happening. And in fact, there are five main eras of miracles that are presented in Scripture. The first is the fact that we are here, all right? God created. And so in the time of creation and to a lesser extent at the time of Abraham, we see some miraculous things going on. Now, creation, could there be anything more stark or more... Um, more clear of a miraculous gift than God making something out of nothing. All right? Caught, you know, saying, let there be light, and what existed? Light. 
speaking and, and the, the plants coming up, the animals coming up, God himself forming man out of the dust of the earth and breathing into him the breath of life. We see that there's, um, there is a judgment of God upon the world in the flood, but if you actually look at how he protected his people, it was through ordinary means. It's not like God said, poof, here's the ark. He said to Noah, build an ark. And guess what Noah had to do? Build the ark. You know, God could have given him some sort of miraculous, you know, carpentry ideas or whatever, but he he gave him the, the plans and then said, you have to put it together. Abraham's life, of course, we, we know that there's miraculous things that are happening there, but they're actually pretty subdued. Um, we have women who have gone far beyond their childbearing years getting pregnant. Very old women um, getting pregnant, and at least from the perspective of those who can give. I don't want to be careful because they're like, I'm as old as Sarah was. No, okay, so that, not saying very old from that perspective, but old from the sense that you don't expect a 95-year-old woman to get pregnant. But that's actually very subdued, and it's, it's very sort of, sort of not put out there. And then if you look at the time of the patriarchs, there is clearly God's providential care of the world and his working through circumstances, but there's really not that much as far as it goes to miraculous gifts. There aren't these amazing things that are happening. Think about Joseph's story. You know, he's thrown in a pit. He's sold into slavery. I mean, his, his, uh, his family faces a famine. There's no miraculous working there besides the fact that God works for for Joseph and gives him the gift of interpreting dreams. But it's not this this major era of miraculous gifts given to all of God's people. So creation in Abraham is the first one. We then see the Exodus and the conquest. So, So from Exodus to the conquest. And here we know that there are some very clear things that happen. Beginning with the plagues of Egypt. You know, the water turning to blood, um, frogs everywhere, right? I, I, the other day I was walking out the back door and there was this giant toad. I mean, he wasn't this big, but he was like this big. And I went to step down. I almost stepped on the toad. And I, I've never stepped on a toad, and I can, I can imagine it's probably not an enjoyable experience. So. But imagine having those everywhere, all right? That wouldn't be, that wouldn't be a lot of fun. Of course, Moses is... is, is uh, performing all sorts of miraculous things there. And then we have the great way that God delivers his people. You know, Moses holding up his hands and the Red Sea is parted. They walk through on dry land. Then the ocean comes down and and swallows them up. There's, of course, the way that God provides for his people, even in their rebellion. Provides manna from heaven and gives them food. Makes water come out of a rock. There's the great conquest. We talked about the walls of Jericho falling down and, and how God gave victory to Israel when they, the, the odds were seemingly insurmountable. And there were times where that was a miraculous event, but there were also other times where he just gave them victory as they fought. Of course, we know there's the time where he made the sun stand still so that Israel would have more time to win the victory. But then you come to that point and you get to the point of the judges. And and actually, what you find is there's not a lot of miraculous things happening. Yeah, we, we hear stories about Samson and how he's given miraculous strength. But, but even from that perspective, someone could look at that and say, oh, he's just, you know, he just works out. You know, he's the Arnold Schwarzenegger of the Bible. Right, like that there? Is that, is that what they do? I don't know. 
So, that, in fact, that time, all the way up, even through the time of the kings, um, and, and even to the later history of Israel, while there are events sort of peppered here and there throughout it, it's not like it's an era of miraculous gifts until we come to the time of the prophets, Elijah and Elisha and Daniel and the minor prophets. And, of course, there we see uh, amazing works of God. We, we see how, again, we spoke of Elijah and Elisha doing amazing things. During the time of Daniel, God would literally write on the wall with his finger, and Daniel would give, um, would give interpretation. We know of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and how they're miraculously saved from the fire. But, again, that was a time, and then when we find the close of the New Testament, there's 400 years of history between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and it's silent. There's not miraculous things going on to the level that they were during the time of the prophets. And then we come to Jesus and the apostles. And there we see, again, as we were viewing here in Acts chapter 2, if you read the book of Acts, you read even as Paul describes certain ways that gifts are to operate in the church, there is an era of New Testament, New Covenant, miraculous gifts happening. The question is, well, is it extending to today? Well, I want to point out something about these eras that we have here, these five eras of these miraculous gifts. Again, while there were occasional times of miracles between these eras, miraculous intervention by God was rare. But there is something that each of these eras have in common. And these eras accompanied the giving of new revelation from God. And so the first one I actually forgot to put on here. Creation, right? In fact, creation is the ultimate act of God revealing himself. Because if God had not created then there would be no revelation of who he is. And that's why the psalmists talk about the heavens declare the glory of God, that the firmament and creation that's given, it shows who he is. And so he does that in a miraculous way. But then we, we look at the time of Moses and Joshua, and what do we have happening with Moses? He's doing all these miraculous things, but what else is he being entrusted with? The law. In fact, Moses writes the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch. And so there is miraculous gifts, but also accompanying those miraculous gifts, what do we have? Revelation from God. We come to the time of the prophets. Why did the prophets have all these miraculous things that surrounded them? Well, it was authenticating their message. It showed them that they were a true prophet of God by authenticating the message at which they had. And so it's during the time of the prophets that most likely we have the historical books being written. We have um, the Psalms, of course, by David being written at those times. And there, in fact, particularly with David, there are some, some specific miraculous things that happen that help to authenticate him as a person that God uses to reveal his word. We have the prophets, and we see the major prophets and the minor prophets in Scripture. But then, after Scripture is finished, after the Old Testament is finished, what happens? Silence for 400 years. And then we have Christ and the apostles. And what we have going on there is an authentication of new covenant revelation. In fact, Jesus points to this specifically in his ministry. He says, look, if you don't believe my word, 
believe the works. And what he's saying there is he's not saying, well, you need to just trust in the fact that I'm doing these things. Rather, he's making the point, why would you not believe my word if these works accompany my word? In other words, this shows that I'm from God. This shows that I'm doing this. And in fact, the Jews notice this. One of them comes to him and they say, you know, we know that you're a prophet from God because no one has ever done these things. Particularly in his miracle of working with the man who was born blind. No one had ever done that. And that was evidence that he was a teacher from God. So these times, creation, Moses and Joshua, the time of the prophets, Christ and the apostles, these, these five eras, if you will, um, of, or four that are meant that I just mentioned, I sort of lumped together Daniel and Elijah. Those eras, if we were to look at the time period, we're talking anywhere between 70 to 120 years for each of those eras. And the rest of the time, si- at least silence from the perspective of these miraculous gifts. So, after each of these eras, what ends up happening is these miraculous interventions would eventually die away as God's revelation became established. Once God's revelation had been given, these miraculous gifts would cease cease to operate. Now, I use the term cease there because uh, that is a position in this particular um, this particular aspect of theology called cessationism. So there are continuationists and cessationists. What do you think continuationists believe? That the miraculous be- gifts continue. What do you think cessationists believe? That the miraculous gifts have ceased. Now, oftentimes this discussion sort of centers around 1 Corinthians chapter 13 because Paul uses the specific statement that these things will cease. That was not actually the passage that convinced me of this. It actually was Hebrews chapter 2. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. Now, Hebrews 1 is all about the preeminence and the the priority of Christ, how he is better than anything that has happened. And then we come to Hebrews chapter 2, and he says, as a result of all this, as a result of who Christ is, therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, not what we have seen. And that seems to be a, a big focus of those who, cont- who are continuationists. They want to focus on seeing these miraculous gifts. But here, the writer of Hebrews is saying we need to focus on what we've heard, what has been spoken to us or proclaimed to us, lest we drift away from it. He says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable. And the ESV uses the term angels there. I would prefer the term messengers. So since the message declared by messengers proved to be reliable, how did it prove to be reliable? The gifts, the signs and the wonders, the proclamation of the gospel by the apostles. And every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution... This is the conclusion. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And then notice what he says here. It was declared first by who? The Lord. So the first prophetic work, that role, was by Christ. And then it was attested to us 
by those who heard the Lord. So there's actually a point to be made here that the writer of Hebrews is someone who has received the message from an apostle, someone who knew Jesus Christ. Now, those who proclaimed the word, how was their message authenticated? God bore witness by what? Signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Here's the argument that the writer of, of Hebrews is saying. God confirmed this new covenant revelation by the apostles through these miraculous gifts. I mean, just think about what's happening here in Acts chapter 2. You know, if Peter were to just stand up and start preaching this wonderful message, that would, I'm sure, garner some attention. But imagine the attention that is drawn to them as there are these 12 people speaking in foreign tongues. And so Peter speaks of this, and then he actually points back to Scripture and says this is fulfilling what Joel had spoken of. This is an era of new revelation. That's what he's pointing to is happening here. And so the, the revelation that is provided through the Spirit by God's word, and here's the key, it is sufficient for God's people. In other words, do we need miraculous gifts to attest to the authenticity of the message of Scripture? And the answer is no. In fact, Paul in 1 Corinthians and at the beginning, in the beginning of 1 Corinthians and at the beginning of 2 Corinthians, the Spirit doesn't authenticate this work by miraculous gifts, he authenticates it through the inward work of illuminating God's word to the individual. That that now is becoming the normative pattern for how the Spirit works among his people. And so, I think when we look at what Paul says to Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, lacking nothing. That's the idea that he's getting across there. Here's the thing that I think we maybe would struggle with if miraculous gifts were still necessary today. Well, I don't speak in tongues. I don't have that, that ability to heal people. Am I lacking something? And the answer is no. You have the completed word of God that is provided to you. It is enough. It's sufficient. And so that's really where the discussion comes down to as I see it. Is the Bible enough? And the answer is yes. These miraculous gifts have ceased. They're no longer necessary. So what we see happening here with these tongues and what we if you were to read through the book of acts and and see the rest of what's going on there the focus even in acts chapter 2 is not on the gifts it's on the message the gifts authenticate the message but the focus is on the message and so we, we're a very experiential type of people right i uh, remember when Kennywood was opening its new coaster, the, the Steel Curtain. And I, I grew up 
going to Kennywood. I loved Kennywood. There, there were times when I was a teenager that I would ride the old school Phantom, right? The steel Phantom, the one that, you know, practically knocked your head off when you rode it, and you would go upside down. I mean, that one. I, I remember riding that six times in a row because it was a slow day at Kennywood, all right? Had lots of fun. And then, you know, I, I'm, I'm looking, and as I've gotten older and bigger, I'm not able to fit in some of the things as like I used to. But I remember when they uh, were talking about building the steel, uh, or the, the, the steel curtain, I was like, oh, I, I watched the video of how it looked. I'm like, oh, this looks like it's going to be fun. When I heard the first announcement, actually the company that was making it, they, uh, they would put out an a animated video, and I would watch the animated video, and then I watched the real video. And then I, you know, that year I had season passes, and, and the first time that it was open to the public, I was in line at like, I don't know, Jimmy, you were with me. We were there early, and then we're like 6 o'clock in the morning. The, the gates didn't open until 10. We were sitting there, and I was going to be one of the first people to ride the steel curtain. And got in, and I think we were on the third train that went out. So that means there were people there even before us at 6 o'clock to, to, to ride it. And so I wanted the experience. I desired that experience. But the question that we need to really confront ourselves with is, Experience can be, it can be misleading, can it? Because experience is all about feelings. It's all about emotions in many senses. I, I tell you, I was a happy camper when I was coming down and, and riding that. Should we build our lives before the Lord based on emotion and based on, no, we should build it based on the eternal truth of His Word, which is enough. And in fact, as we look into the eternal word of God, Paul tells us in, in 2 Corinthians that we see the glory of God there. Is there anything more glorious than the glory of Jesus Christ? Not even speaking in tongues. Not even being able to have miracles done. The glory of Christ is enough. And so, what we have is sufficient. These miracles were given. They authenticated the word, but that's not what we're to desire. We're to desire the prophetic word of God, which is able to save our souls and conform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that miracles don't happen. Do miracles happen today? Absolutely. There are people who have cancer. They're prayed for. They go to the, they go to the doctor, get another scan, and suddenly the cancer's disappeared. There's, there's all sorts of stories of how God works in that way. But just as it was throughout the times of the history and Scripture, so it is today, those things are exceedingly rare. It is not the main way in which God speaks. Today, He speaks through His Word. As a... Uh, a, a guy who I've found very helpful on a lot of these things, his name is Justin Peters. He has this statement, he says, you know, um, if you want to hear God speak, read the word. If you want to hear him speak audibly, read it out loud. And I think that's, that's a great way that we can focus on how these miraculous gifts are used today. Any questions about that? I, that's a big topic, and I know, and like I said, there, there are believers, there are people that I respect that have disagreements with me on that, and that's fine. 
Um, but I just wanted to, any questions on that? Okay. Right, oh yeah. Well, and that's different though than what's happening in Acts chapter 2. It's not that they understood, they didn't study these tongues. They came instantly. But what I'm saying is that's different than what's happening in Acts chapter 2. There's a difference between studying and being able to have abilities with language. These are Galilean fishermen who had never studied any other language. They probably knew Greek and Hebrew. Not in this way. Not in this way. So in one sense, every gift is miraculous because it's a gift from the Holy Spirit. But these sign gifts, these miraculous gifts that were given to authenticate the message. So, so things like tongues, things like healings, things like prophecy, they, they operated until, not until Jesus ascended, but until Scripture was completed. And then there was no longer a need to authenticate those things because God had given His full revelation, as had happened in every other era of the prophetic um, working of God throughout Scripture history. Does that make sense? Yeah. Right. Right, right. Oh, yeah, they're still in it. Oh, yes, absolutely. Yes. Not the miraculous ones. Yes, yes, yes. No, absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, clearly, clearly, and that's, let me be clear about that. Yes, the, there, are, there are gifts given to people. We are gifted by the Spirit to edify the church and to, to build it up and and those gifts are still in operation today. Your abilities that you have that you can minister to others is a miraculous gift of God. And really, the very fact that we know Jesus Christ as our personal Savior, is that not the greatest miracle that has happened for us? So yes, from that perspective, those miraculous things continue today. Those gifts do continue today. Uh, but not for the sake of authenticating new revelation. And, and that's another thing to think about regarding, like, the gift of tongues and the gift of prophecy and the gift of interpretation of tongues is that requires, by its very nature, direct revelation from God to an individual. All right, where, where did that person get that gift to speak a tongue that he had never learned before? Direct revelation from God. When someone gave prophecy, how did that happen? Direct revelation from God. When someone interpreted it, direct revelation from God. We don't need direct revelation from God anymore because is His Word not sufficient? Yes. And so that's where, uh, that's where we look with those things. Any other questions? So I want to be very clear. Do I believe that miracles still happen? Yes. And unfortunately, many times, people who hold to the position that I've explained as cessationism they're sort of labeled as, well, you don't believe miracles happen anymore. Absolutely miracles happen. As I just said, the greatest miracle happens when someone turns from sin, their eyes are opened, and they turn to Christ. 
So miracles happen every day by God's grace. But they don't happen in many of the sensational, miraculous ways that we often liken and consider uh, in, in response to those things. All right, I have more to talk about, but we only got three minutes left. <laughs> so we're not going to go any further this evening, unless you have any other questions. Yeah, Vicki. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. And I, th- I even think if you read what Paul says and how he describes these gifts functioning in the church, I don't think he would say that that's happening every time. What's happening at Pentecost is unique from the perspective that it is the first coming of the Spirit on the, on the uh, apostles. But, but yeah, and, and the other thing, too, that you find, particularly in and among groups that continue the practice of specifically tongues, um, they, they very rarely actually practice it as Paul has laid it down to be practiced in the book of 1 Corinthians. It's to be done orderly. There's to always be an interpreter. Um, and that you just don't, you really don't see that happening very often uh, among groups. There are some, and I, I want to be fair to those that believe in the continuation of gifts. And, you know, it, if you believe in the continuation of gifts, it doesn't make you not a Christian, all right? You can still be a believer and, and believe in this happening. Um, uh, I just, as the way that I look at what Scripture lays out, I just don't see it as a continuing thing. Th- there was a time where I was almost there. I mean, I, I, particularly as there are some very, very uh, well-respected theologians that I look to that believe that they continue today. And some of their arguments I had to really think about. Um, but it, it, was, it was really f- meditating on Hebrews chapter 2 and, and seeing how these were given, the Lord spoke, the apostles spoke, God bore witness through the signs, but now that the speaking of the apostles is done, there's no longer a need for God to bear witness through those sign gifts. Mm-hmm. Right. Right, yeah. Yeah. And, and praise the Lord that the Scripture was spoken in those instances. So, right, right, exactly. So. Right. 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 But that's so that's speci- so just to, Jesus is talking specifically in relation to the new birth. Right. They do. Right. Right. So it, are, if you're asking, should someone know if they have gifts from the Spirit? Yes. Right. 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 No, you're, you're absolutely right. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And the Spirit gifts you. You use those gifts both to proclaim the truth to the world outside and to minister and edify the body of Christ. So, yes, that, that absolutely happens. Um, 
I think also, have any of you ever seen the online, give, the online test for figure out your spiritual gift? All right. Well, if you haven't, good for you. Because a lot of times the questions they ask have nothing to do with how spiritual gifts are, are, uh, are put together. How, how do you know, and I think maybe you're asking, well, how do you know then what your spiritual gift is? And this is sort of a broader, um, a broader category than what we were particularly focusing on. But I think the answer is minister, serve, you know, talk to other believers, be- begin to work, and, and, it w- and God will make it apparent to you what is what your gifting is, what you're able to do. You know, not everybody can, is gifted to get up behind a pulpit and preach. I, I talked to, um, I've talked to people here in this church before, and they, they said, I don't know how you do it. I would be mute if I walked up behind and had to speak in front of people. There's a giftedness that's given. Other people have giftedness for helping other individuals, for speaking words of encouragement, for, for uh, ministering among the body in different ways. And here's the thing is, and one of the things that Paul says about those gifts is any one gift necessarily more important than the other. No, because if one thing doesn't function, then it harms the body. And so, and so one of the things we can take away from this, particularly as we understand spiritual gifts given to everyone, is what should you be doing with your spiritual gift? Using it, ministering, sharing and speaking and either sharing the gospel with others or speaking in such a way so that you can edify the church because you will actually harm the body of Christ by not ministering with the gifts that Jesus has given you through the Holy Spirit. So yes, yeah, there, there, there's certainly, and, and the one great thing about how the Spirit works in gifting His people today is that it's not for a moment the Spirit doesn't, you know, tongues would come upon and it's a momentary thing. I can speak in tongues and then it's gone. The continuing gifts, we have them all the, times because, all the time because we have the Spirit indwelling us all the time. I mean, isn't that amazing? The third person of the Trinity, all right, it, to, and I know you're not supposed to speak this way theologically, one third of God lives inside of you. Isn't that incredible? He, every time you read his word, he opens it to you. When you're dealing with difficulties in life, he reminds you of the promises that he's given. He will use your words as they're tied to the word of God to, to breathe new life into others. I mean, that's the glory that we have. That's, that's why Paul speaks of the Spirit as the down payment of our inheritance. Because what is our great inheritance? It is the presence of God for all eternity. And we get to experience that now as we have the Spirit given to us, indwelling us, so that we can fulfill the prophetic role that we've been given to do. And so we'll come back next week and we'll finish up looking at how Pentecost fulfills this prophecy of the prophetic role of the church. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we thank you for your love. We thank you for uh, the hope we have in Christ. And Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit. Lord, we know that he does not draw attention to himself, but he speaks of Christ. And so, Father, we give thanks to you for the Spirit because the Spirit is the one who introduces us to Christ, who points us to his glory and his majesty, his dominion, his power. His glory, His grace, His mercy, His love. That all these things we know through the Spirit. And then He gives gifts 
to us, that we can use them to minister for the edification and building up of your body. Father, thank you for the word that has been delivered and authenticated. And thank you, Father, that your spirit uses your word today to transform us more into the image of Jesus Christ. Father, may we take this hope. May we be sensitive to the spirit's leading in our lives throughout the rest of this week. Father, thank you for the gift of the spirit. We pray this in Christ's name, pleading his blood. Amen. Thanks for joining us online. Thanks for joining us here in person. Have a great week.